Well, good morning, everybody. It is so good to see you this morning. It really is. The second here. There it goes. Glad you've made it. And uh, welcome, of course, to all of you who are physically here. And those of you who are joining us on our live stream, it's good to have you with us as well. I'd say it's good to see you, but we know what I mean by that. Uh, glad that you're here today. I would love to have you take your Bibles and uh, turn with me to the book of Genesis chapters 1 and 2, where we will begin in just a few moments. And, of course, uh, I would want you as well to get those sermon notes from your bulletin. That will be very important for you to have those near to you as we uh, move ourselves along here today. Uh, This morning, as you know, because you've been staying with me here, you're aware that our topic is thinking Christianly about politics. I want to give one little disclaimer up up front here. If you were coming today hoping that I would, you know, verbally spank all the people who don't think as as sharply as you do, um, there's a good chance that might not happen. Um, I realize that when it comes to this kind of an area, uh, not only is there a lot of volatility and difference of opinion, but but, uh, the strong suspicion that all the good Christians out there who are spiritually mature and know their Bibles will think exactly like you. And uh, one of my tasks today is to disabuse you of that very arrogant notion. I suspect that I will step on a whole number of toes today, and I embrace that and plan to run for it at the end of the morning. I'm kidding, of course. I don't don't think I'll need to do that. But I also know that I'm going to be approaching things this morning very different from what you may have come here expecting. So all of that said, you have your Bibles open to Genesis and um, I'll join you there in a moment, but I want, I want to refer to one little vignette from the Gospel of John just by way of reference. In John chapter 12, there is a moment uh, as Jesus is on his journey to the cross where some people came to Jesus' disciples with a request. And it's a request that I find so specific and clear and it's, it's my desire for us today as well. Uh, we're told in John 12 that this group of Greeks came to Philip and said, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And then one told another, and we're not told how it all worked out, but the request has lived on down through 2,000 years. We want to see Jesus. And it is my hope that even as we talk about thinking Christianly about politics, that we will not ever move too far from the shadow of the cross. And so if you would just keep thinking gospel and the work of Jesus on the cross throughout all of this, I think it will flavor our conversation in a good way. And I appreciate that a lot. I want to pray for us that God would help us, that he would be the one who guides our time. Um, uh, We need his help today. So pray with me, please. Our Father, as always, we come to your word with great joy, uh, looking to you to guide our life and to frame our thinking, and most of all, to shape our hearts. We can think as rightly as possible, and yet our hearts can be far from you. And somehow we need the union of both, a good theology, good doctrine, and a, a, a warm heart of affection for Christ and for God's people. And I pray this morning as we step into this realm that perhaps we don't often venture into, that you would guide us in the things that we say. I'll trust you as well for the things that we don't say. Uh, More will be unsaid than is said. But please help us during this time. 
In Jesus' name, amen. So on your sermon notes, you have, of course, that little reminder about our sermon series, Thinking Christianly About All of Life, and our efforts to emphasize both biblical content and a Christ-honoring attitude. Sometimes, uh, perhaps, the term biblically, as much as I love it, could be taken to think only of content and order and structure and doctrine, and those things are wonderful. I love them all. But I find it so important to wed a Christ-honoring attitude here, and certainly that's true in this topic today. I, I want to talk today about God's purpose in human government. That's really where I'm going. And I, I am going to do this knowing that there are entire college and graduate-level courses and postgraduate-level courses on this topic. And, and my goodness sakes, books written. I spent a bit of time in, in the small section of this book um, that, that spoke to this topic. Uh, John Frame, The Doctrine of Christian Life, Theology of Lordship, an extensive a treatment of the, of the history of these relationships that we're going to speak about today. It was very helpful uh, coming from a Reformed angle. Uh, wonderful, wonderfully, wonderfully done. Um, but what I'm going to do is go straight to one treatment of, of thinking about the Christian and politics and about all of life. I'm going to this quick nod to the others that come before. Okay. There are, there have been discussions of this for hundreds and hundreds of years. I'm going to bypass all of those and go to one. And if you're familiar with the discussion, you could say, yeah, but you didn't mention, I, I, you're right. I didn't. I'm going to one place. And that is, of course, as you see in front of you, uh, there under that first category, I'm going to refer to the work of Abraham Kuyper, who was a Dutch theologian. He was not the first to think about this, but I like his codifying of this, and I find the framework very helpful, if only to give us uh, a way to speak about these things. So you see in your sermon notes, there are two, two areas I'm going to, to be speaking into today. First is God's created order built around spheres of authority. Some have called these spheres of sovereignty, as I think Kuiper did. He did not define a certain number. I'm going to surface with you five. There is another one mentioned in the community group notes that I'll let you explore on your own. But I want you to get a concept in mind. Okay, about how God ordered the world. Again, you can agree with it or disagree with it, use different terms, but I think, I think it will resonate with your heart. Then, as you look at the next section, just to get an idea of where we're going, I want to talk about responsibilities, limits, and dangers in those five categories. And all of this speaks to the relationship of the Christian, both to local politics and national politics and policies and all manner of law and legal issues. So the framework, I think, will be helpful to you. So God, then, God's ordered world involves spheres of authority. Kuiper, by the way, lived 1837 to 1920. And even now, 100 years later, uh, there's a lot of work being done with his material. And I think we'll be the better for it. In, Gen in the book of Genesis, not surprisingly, book of beginnings, book of Genesis means that, of course, beginnings, you find the beginning of several of these spheres of authority Okay, this will make sense to you. I know it will. So I'm going to go, first of all, to Genesis 1 and 2, right here at the beginning, the beginning of God's creation. Uh, the story of Genesis, of course, begins with God beginning all that is. God created the heavens and the earth. And there is a, a, a broad overview given in chapter 1 and down through chapter 2, verse 3. Then you see a little break. The Hebrew does as well. And you find the color commentary. 
Okay, beginning in chapter 2, verse 4. And it's in verse 7 you find the first human show up. And, if you will, the first sphere of authority begins here. So I read chapter 2, verse 7. The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Okay, we'll stop for a moment. Then is described where God put that man, Adam. But the beginning, the beginning of this is... God made an individual. He could have created hundreds or thousands at once. He didn't. He started with one. And you'll notice in chapter 2, verse uh, 16, God does something else. God gives him a moral order. He gives him the moral order of the garden. He says, you can eat of everything except that. Now, question for you. To whom is Adam accountable for that command? God. God did not create a, a divine policeman in the garden to stand there and watch Adam. Things might have gone better if he had, uh, but you know he didn't. So at this moment, it is, track with me, an individual before his God. This is the role of conscience. If you wonder historically, the, the value of the individual, in a sense, begins here. This is, can be traced through the Bible. We can look at all kinds of stuff. And you find it in the New Testament. We refer to it often in this church, for example, in Romans 14, where one person living before God says, no, I see it this way. And another person on the same issue who still loves Jesus and knows the Bible says, I see it this way. It's the role of conscience, the individual before God. Okay, are you with me on this? Moral order, accountable to God. There's a vertical element of this. We'll speak more about some, some other details in a moment. Now, a second, if you will, right here at the beginning. Uh, in verse 15, God presents another uh, sphere of authority, at least in seed thought. Specifically, God gives Adam, well, a job, doesn't he? Isn't this great? Uh, this may be news to you. Work precedes the fall. Work did not enter the world because of sin. Now, it got worse because of sin. Thorns and thistles, of course, grew up. But God gave Adam a responsibility, a reason to get up in the morning. He put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it, to cultivate it, to tend it. And there's accountability, in this case, to God. So it's a work sphere. All right? That, that kind of gets you... Uh, there are those who think of work as a result of the fall and therefore can hardly wait to the day when they can spend the rest of their life in a hammock with a glass of lemonade. Nothing wrong with hammocks and lemonade, but if that's it for your life, I mean, really it? I mean, seriously, is that what you, you may think you want? You know, you really want it for a couple days. Some of you maybe a little longer, but that's not what you want for years. You don't. Because God wired us to do something meaningful then just sit there. And we hear this in, a, in of course, the plaintive tones of, of a person who's reaching the latter part of their life when they're aware they can't do much. How many people in those years say to a loved one, I just feel like I'm not any good anymore. They're appealing to this, that sense that God wired in every one of us that for goodness sakes, for all your time off that you covet, you also really want to have it matter, do something. 
So this, this realm of work precedes the fall. It's a gift from God. It's the opportunity to do something. So it's a realm of authority. The individual before God, and as we'll see, there are responsibilities that attend to each of these. Work, there's responsibilities to attend to this. Do your job well. So we could speak of that as a Christian virtue. Now, third, same chapter, following uh, the individual, following this realm of work that's carved out very early on, uh, as we'll see more next week, verse 18, God says it's not good for Adam to be alone, and God creates Eve through this amazing process that's described here in the text. So Eve shows up in verse 22, uh, named, of course, by, by Adam. God brings her to Adam. And in verse 24, you have this clear, uh, clearly um, a, a marriage pronouncement by God. A man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. Clearly intended to be something beyond Adam and Eve because at this point, there were no mothers and fathers to leave from. So this is describing the beginning of something. So the the origin of marriage, the description of marriage, again, our topic next week, comes from God himself. So this then would be a third sphere of authority or realm of sovereignty or however you want to put it. So individual rights and responsibilities of an individual before God. A work environment has rights and responsibility and limits and marriage and family here. Rights, responsibilities, and limits. Now, we're going to shift to the next text that I have listed there in that order, to Exodus 20. And again, I'm, I, I realize that I'm, I'm uh, leaving a lot unsaid. Uh, if you've been familiar with some of the studies done in these areas, I, I, I'm somewhat familiar with a, a broader range of literature and thinking here. But I'm, I'm moving uh, quickly for a reason. Exodus 20, then, there's a... There's a codification of what life looks like lived before God. So I'm going to call this the spiritual realm before God. Uh, Israel, in these early days, a theocracy, right? That is, uh, God is the ruler, and he ordains humans under him. But this is a spiritual leadership moment. Exodus 20, we're at Mount Sinai. Familiar with the moment, of course. God spoke all these words saying, and here comes the Decalogue, or the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments that we have read, again, just fairly recently. Chapter 21, I'm going someplace. Chapter 21, verse 1, again, here are the rules that you shall set before them. And then in chapter 24, uh, verse 3, this is one of the moments where the people who receive the commands from God say yes. They ratify it. And I understand suzerain vassal treaties and ancient models, got it. Um, But this is a moment where Moses, it says in chapter 24, verse 3, Moses tells the people the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people said with one voice, all the, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So there's a spiritual component here. And if I, again, I'm uh, huge brush, uh, I put this under the category of church, spiritual leadership, church, Old Testament, I realize Israel, New Testament church is my framework. Um, different people use different terms, but for my purposes today, it's one category. Are you with me on this? Spheres of sovereignty, that's number four, right? And now I'm going to give you one more, and we're going to go to 1 Samuel 8. You're not going to like this chapter. It's a rough one. You know, just saying, um, but it's interesting to look at. 1 Samuel 8. Kuiper, of course, never gave a number of spheres of authority, but he laid the groundwork for all of these things 
as I mentioned, five at this juncture, and then I will narrow it down for our treatment of it. First Samuel 8, uh, something is happening here. Again, I'm assuming you know a little bit of Old Testament history. Samuel, um, the prophet, last of the prophets, beginning of the kings and so on, uh, but, but we're about to step into this first king. Samuel's getting older, and in verse 5, the people come to him and say, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. This is a big deal. Up until this moment, there's not been a, a human civil leader. There have been other leaders of, of communities and things like that, but not a king. And I'm going to be using, for our purposes today, this beginning of a kingship as, in a sense, I understand the vast differences. But for our thought today, the beginning of a more civil, of a civil government, okay? Um, you can debate that with me if you like. Please don't. But a king, nonetheless. Now, God says, uh, man, I was, I was going to be the king. I'm, I'm the king. And you're rejecting that. That shows up in verse 8. Um, verse 7, God says to Samuel, obey the voice of the people. They've not rejected you. They've rejected me from being king over them. So this is a big moment. This was not God's original plan. People pushed and pushed and said, we want to be like everybody else, so give us a king. Now, starting in verse 10, and I'm going to read this section here. You're going to hopefully not chuckle too loudly, but God with Samuel say to the people, if this is really what you want, let me tell you what it's going to look like. Okay? You're asking for a civil leader? Merry Christmas. Okay, so here we go. Verse 11. These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your kids. Well, that's what it says. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. Translation, there's going to be chariots too. He's going to need some accolades. He will appear for himself. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties. Well, that's not all bad. This is called an army. Kind of need that. Some to plow his ground and reap his harvest make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariot. So somebody's got to supply him with stuff. Who's going to feed him? Well, somebody. Well, that'll be you guys. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He'll take the best. Uh Uh-oh, it's a problem here. He'll take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. This civil leader, the civil government, it's going to become a system, not just a person. You just wanted a king. Guess what? There's going to be a whole thing that's part of that. This is going to be a, it's going to be a major movement. He's, it's, going to, it's, going to be, it's going to need resources to keep this thing going. He'll take a tenth of your grain and your vineyards. Imagine if taxes were only 10%. The people reading this were all gasped. 10%? No, don't. Well, we would all go, hey, I'll sign up for that. Well, he's just telling them. He's going to take your stuff too to make this happen. You do understand that, right? He'll take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He'll take a tenth of your flocks and you'll be his slaves. And in that, uh-oh, in that day, you will cry out because of your king. Who would ever do that? Who would ever cry out because of a, of a, of a ruler? I, I, that never happens today. The Bible just seems so, uh, uh, come on. In that day, you'll cry out because of your king whom you've chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. The people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. They said, no, but you shall make a king. And so he got, they got Saul out of the deal. Now, God is letting them know. As we take this step towards civil government, it comes with some things. 
And we're going to call those rights, responsibilities, limits. We'll flesh that out in a minute. But he's just saying to the folks, you do know what you're signing up for, right? There's going to be an army. There's going to be protection. That's not a bad thing. Military, things like that. Police, that's all falls into this heading. But it's going to take resources to make it happen. And you, as a part of what you're signing up for, you're agreeing to pay for that. Okay? And God is making sure that people are aware of that. Now, if you look at what I have on your, your study notes here, uh, then I've, I've gone with sphere of authority, number one, the individual. Number two, work or a job. Third, marriage and family. Fourth, I use the term church to subsume the entire category of spiritual leadership. And number five, human government, of course, means taxes to pay. And please pay attention to these words that follow. A hungry state. That is, the system will tend, will tend to grow and it will need more resources. Okay? And he's going to take more and more of your stuff and watch this, unless checked. Okay? Checks. Checks and balances. You ever heard that before? Uh, yes. Where do you think some of these principles came from in human government? Really, honestly, they're founded in the Bible. The Bible presents checks and balances too. Well, okay, turn the page. <clears throat> We're going to keep right on rolling. This category of responsibilities, limits, and dangers, we start talking about some specifics, okay? And I've given you a big list of read and study. We're going to, I want to talk about the first two little bullet points before I read any of the texts, okay? So here's, here's what this is about. In each of these spheres of authority or spheres of sovereignty, you've got to get this. There are responsibilities that belong in that sphere of authority. You, before God, the individual, listen, you have a responsibility before God for what happens in your little world. You, before God. There are responsibilities there for you to pursue him. It doesn't mean it's somebody else's. It's not not the church's job to, to, to guard your heart. It's you, before God. Church is supposed to help, but there's a role that's yours, your conscience before God. Family is another one. Suppose for a minute here, uh, I and the church leaders, pay attention to this. Suppose we took a look at what's going on in culture, and suppose we said, you know what? It is our conviction that all good Christians, in fact, everybody who's a part of Sunset Bible Church, given all that's out there, should educate their children this way, And suppose we made it a mandate, a rule, to be part of this church, you'll do it this way. How would you like that? Would that be a good idea? What's the problem? What if we were right in our assessment? What if we were right in our assessment of culture? What if it was a good, it was a good mandate? Would you push back? Why? You would be right to push back. You would push back because whether you use these terms or not, you would say, wait a minute, pastor, elders, etc. You all can make suggestions, but don't step into our sphere of authority. It's called marriage and family. Our family, we decide these things. Instinctively, you who read and study the Bible and love God would know, hold on, there are things that belong here. Kuiper called that a sphere of authority. There are things that belong there, not for somebody else. You would say, uh, make a suggestion if you like. Lobby, explain your case, and then we'll decide. How am I doing? Is that correct? Or, if we insisted, 
and kept pushing, you would quickly find another church. That's what you would do. You would all vote by saying, see ya, and because you would know that that was authority or leadership misused. And you would, you would push back against it. Now, so my next question, what happens when one sphere overreaches? Those in the other spheres should push back. And I am suggesting to you today, no, I'll give you examples from the Bible, that that is the right and God-honoring thing to do. To defend that individual place. If uh, there are governments, for example, oh man, uh, so many little details. There are governments that are all about the right of the state. And the right of the individual is non-existent. Uh, North Korea would be an example of this. The state matters, you don't. Totalitarian states. If we have to get rid of you because you're squawking, no problem. It won't affect the state at all. There are other, there are other people, other, other, other governments that are set up the other way. And sometimes today, some of our younger people, not you guys, of course, because you're here, but in, in our world, there are those who think that pure democracy is a better way to go. The rights of the people, whatever the rights of the people are, that that's a better way to go. Just a sheer vote, democratic vote, let it be done. Let me tell you, history calls that a bloodbath disaster. It's called the French Revolution. Uh, if you think that sounds so good, just think, study your history and go back to France where, where the common people said, well, we just think that all the current leaders should all die. And so they went about doing it. And all kinds of people. <laughs> anyway, pure democracy uh, has a terrible history. Not everybody knows that. Even as people say, no, just go with the, you know, the sheer vote of the people. Yeah, be careful with that because what if the people are wrong? What if they're wrong before God? What if they lead you right over a cliff? I'm saying this. There are responsibilities that belong in the sphere of authority. Part of our government has responsibility to the citizen that you ignore to your own peril. You have responsibilities in the family. You have responsibilities in a church. If you're a part of a church, you have responsibilities as part of civil government. You do. So you should know what those are and live into them. Now, there are limits. There are dangers when those limits are violated. And here I want to, oh my goodness, move quickly. I want you to see um, spheres of authority gone bad when the limits are violated and what pushback looks like. I want you to see it. It's in the Bible. And this is important stuff. So uh, you're right now, if you've got your Bible open, you're with me. You're in 1 Samuel 9. It's not a big jump to 1 Samuel 13. Here is an example of sphere sovereignty, sphere authority violated. So we're in 1 Samuel 13. We've gone ahead a few years. Saul, of course, is that first king appointed by Samuel. And Saul is waiting for Samuel to come for an offering to be, to be uh, presented before God. Samuel is late, gets in a camel jam, or I don't know what it is. Something happens. Samuel doesn't come. And so in verse, uh, verse 9... Saul the king says, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings, and he offered the burnt offering. See any problems with that? Yeah, it wasn't his job. The the civil leader stepped into the religious realm and kind of took over. No problem, right? History bears that. No, big problem. History shows all kinds of problems when civil leaders and religious leaders get their job switched. There have been times in history when religious leaders, no, really, uh, believed that they could just, because they're the religious leaders, that they had authority to toss out a bad leader. There were some medieval popes who worked on that. No, we represent God. That person's out. Like, whoa, time out, tiger. Spheres of authority, Kuiper would say. Well, so here, Samuel shows up in verse 11 and says, what have you done? What have you done? 
Saul explains himself, says, well, you know, sorry, you weren't here. And, you know, the enemy was coming and we knew we had to appease God somehow was the idea. And, and so I forced myself, couldn't help it. Verse 12, I it's crossed into the wrong line of authority. Samuel says, no, you've done foolishly. Ultimately, verse 14, God has sought out a man after his own heart. And down goes Saul. Now, looking at that list of, t- of, of scriptures, I'm going to mention the next one tell you the brief story, and then we're going to go to Second Chronicles 26. That's the next one. If you're, if you're tracking with me, I'd love to go to Second Chronicles 26. But on the way there, there's a story in 1 Kings 21 <clears throat> that illustrates a, a misuse of state power. It's a story of Ahab and Jezebel. And Ahab was the king. Jezebel was his wife. They were not good people. They were not God lovers. And they were not people lovers. And there came a day when Um, when King Ahab looked out his window and saw his neighbor, Naboth, with a very nice-looking vineyard and said, wouldn't it be fun to grow vegetables there, Mama? And so he went over to Naboth and said, hey, I'd like to get your vineyard to plow it under and plant some cucumbers and things. And Naboth said, no, not on your life, my vineyard. It's my my family's property. He, He said no to the government. Can you imagine? What's he thinking? Well... Uh, Ahab, of course, went back and sulked. You can read about it. He went back and sulked. He said, the guy said no. I told him I wanted his property. He said no to me. Well, Jezebel comes along. Jezebel is my name for her. Jezebel came along and said, buddy, you're the king. You can do whatever you want. You have the sword. She said, watch me get your, I'll get the, I'll get the cucumbers for you. So she sets up a, a, whole, a whole deal where she gets some false people to come in and say bad things about Naboth. Boom, he's out. And she uh, goes to her husband and says, you plant your veggies. Look at that. What a a wonderful world it is. But God saw. And it was a misuse of the sword. It was a misuse of civil government. It was evil government. And Naboth was right to turn down the request, the demand of civil government. He was wrong. The government was wrong. Oh, 2 Chronicles 26. Interesting little story. We referenced this uh, last week in our biblical counseling seminar. The story of King Uzziah, who had been a great guy for a long time. He starts off so good, sets his heart to seek God. Verse 5, as long as he sought God, God made him prosper. But something happened over the years. There's a heart shift. Civil government. Can you imagine a heart shift? Starts off so good. But something happens in verse 16. It says, when he became strong. When he became strong, he became proud. He started feeling a little bigger for his britches. you imagine this? To his destruction. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God. And guess what he does? It's kind of like Saul. He entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Uh-uh, civil government. Not your job. You're in the wrong lane, tiger. But Uzziah figures he can because, you know, he's big and powerful. Who's going to tell me no? Well, actually, uh, Azariah the priest Verse 17, he went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor. Some of your Bibles call that men of courage. Why was it so important that, that they be men of courage, people of courage? What was that all about? 80 of them. They got a posse. You want to go with me? We're going to go confront the king. Yes, he can cut our heads off. We're going in. Are you going in? Yep, I'm going. And 80 of them, men of courage, went in to confront the king. And they said... It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. You don't belong here. This is, this is this space. This is this sphere of authority. 
you're in the wrong one. Now, rather than Uzziah saying, you know, guys, you're right. That was a check and a balance, and you're right. I'm going to get out of here. He didn't. Verse 19, imagine the civil leader becomes angry. He doesn't like being told no. It's a proper pushback. It's done well. They didn't go after him with swords. They came to him to push back. Uzziah gets angry. God sees. God brings judgment. And, of course, the rest of that story is there. Uh, The point is, here's an example of a civil leader who had gone the wrong direction. He had set aside his God-given responsibility. And men of courage came along and said, no, that's not the way it works. Interesting. Uh, I'm going to reference the stories in Daniel. We preached through Daniel this summer. And these are telling as well. We saw them, uh, Daniel 1, Daniel 3, Daniel 6. In Daniel 1, you remember, the, there, there, were, there were food rules given for Daniel and his friends, things they should eat. And Daniel looked at that and said, uh, we're not supposed to eat that stuff for whatever reason. And so Daniel uh, appealed. He didn't just say, forget it, I won't. He appealed to the, right through the lines of authority to say, I'd like to propose another alternative. We want to eat this. He got permission. They were able to do it differently. But there was pushback. In this case, an offering of an alternative that better also met the objective. In Daniel 3, this is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three Hebrew boys, who were told, of course, to bow in worship before that false image. And they said, not so much. They were respectful to the king. O king, they called him. We're really not going to do that. And, of course, they paid the ultimate price thrown into a fiery furnace. God delivered them. He did not have to, did he? Down through the years, a lot of people have died uh, by denying government, by saying no, either a bad government or in some cases, um, well, not even a government, but a mob. But people have said no, paid with their lives. God delivered them out of the fiery furnace, of course. Daniel 6, similarly, Daniel is there when they're told, to only pray to the king or honor the king for 30 days. Remember this? Now, Daniel, watch this. Daniel could have said for 30 days, how about this? Can't I just pray silently in my heart before the Lord? Shut the curtains. You know, I had the windows open, prayed toward Jerusalem. I don't really have to do that. That's not required in the Bible. Can't I just, you know, back it up for 30 days? And Daniel, I suspect, thought to himself, self, but if I back it up and, the, and I yield to that edict, in some way I'm complicit. I'm giving my approval. No, I'm not going to do that. So he continued to pray with the windows open toward, and prayed toward Jerusalem uh, as he had multiple times in the day. And of course, captured, thrown into the lion's den. And again, God delivered him, did not have to. Some of God's people have been eaten by lions. But he said, no, it's a check. It was a check of the state. Oh man, I want to go to Romans 13. The classic text that people go to, of course, to discuss this. Uh, Some in this church uh, have either discussed this with me or with others to say, um, government, government makes a rule. They're not prohibiting the preaching of the gospel. Why in the world would would we not toe the line? Romans 13. By the way, before I read this, uh, I want to state the obvious. You ready for the obvious? Um. During this COVID season, there have been some believers, remember the difference of opinions? Some who have wanted or in their own life or wanted in a church or everywhere else to follow all of the government guidelines and cannot understand why others have said, hold on, this is why. 
this discussion of spheres of authority. This is the conversation. I'm just, just calling it out. Uh, even without saying where I stand, though I will in a minute, um, I'm saying this is the point of discussion. Spheres of authority. This sphere, you have the right to say this. Do you have the right to address this one? So I'm going to read Romans 13, and then I'll talk about that for a moment. Romans 13, 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good, and you'll receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. If you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the evil on the wrongdoer, the evildoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of, of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Of course, you'll remember Paul is writing this in the days of the Roman Empire, which is not exactly a Jesus-loving place. But Paul is defining the responsibilities of government given by God, specifically to be a, a terror to the bad and a rewarder of good. Right? That's the job of government. Get the bad guys, and God gives them the sword which is not only about the sword to take life, but it's a sort of authority. Uh, military is derived out of that. The police, with deadly force, may I say, is derived from this. The individual police officer, I'm very proud to be a, a dad of two, uh, twice, blue, right? Uh, law enforcement dad, yes, times two. I get this. Um, it isn't their authority. They carry the authority of the state as given to the state by God. And the state is supposed to, the state is supposed to reward good and punish evildoers. Now, does the state always do that? I don't mean the United States. Historically, have states always done this? The answer is obviously not. There have been times in the history of this world, please study history, please study history, before you say, well, it, just, it doesn't give exceptions. You should just always, just always obey the, hold on, hold on. God's people down through the years have wrestled with this. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Germany in the 1940s, a good Jesus-loving, God-saturated, God-saturated man, single, I, I suspect for good reason, who, who early on was trying to find every way possible to work with the government, uh, uh, Hitler's government, and eventually arrived at that place where he said, Dear God, this government has forfeited all of its rights and responsibilities. And somebody better put a stop to it. And he signed up for a, a group that was set out to assassinate Adolf Hitler. So he understood this text to say, here's the job of government. But if government ever doesn't do this, that is punish evil and reward good, then it, at those places, we need to push back however strongly. Now, the story is told, of course, Francis Schaeffer of the Brethren Church in Germany during that time. Bonhoeffer, a, a huge part of all of those movements, uh, who part of the Brethren Church said, toe the line everywhere, for Romans 13. And they, they kind of went along with Hitler. 
And the other half of the church said, yeah, Romans 13. But when the government quits doing that, we have a responsibility before God to say no. And they went the other way. The, the, the brother and church split in World War II over that kind of a thing. Do you, how do you apply Romans 13? At the end of the war, yes, the one side hadn't suffered at all. And the other side had suffered horribly. Bonhoeffer, of course, arrested as part of that plot to overthrow the government, uh, executed, I believe it was eight days before Hitler took his life. Uh, Fossenberg uh, concentration camp is pretty much a, a dedicated to, to Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his memory. I've stood in the courtyard where he was executed. I've stood in the cell where he spent his last night. And there were little plaques all over the place. He was just a Christian man who said, no, this government isn't doing this. And somehow before God, yes, I've read the text, somebody better push back. And he died for that, of course, as you know. So I have on your study notes, the job of the state is to punish evil and promote good. The church and the family do not punish murderers. The state does. There's limits to, to authority. There, there's spheres of authority, spheres of influence, which as I come back to, to uh, uh, my example earlier about the leaders of a church suddenly giving a mandate to a congregation, right, on how to educate their children. And I said to you, what if the edict, what if the mandate was correct? What if, what if honestly it was right? Would you push back? Yes, ideally a number of you would because you'd say you may be right, you may be right in spelling it out, but you don't have the right pastor to mandate it. And I'm pushing back on the style, maybe not the terms. Now, again, I'm asking you to wrestle with this like, you know, God-fearing adults. This is why, like in California, Dr. John MacArthur has said, hold on. We're going to sing in our church. That's a spiritual responsibility. Say what you like, but we're going to do that. Okay? Um, the, the, the initial things, I told you early on, um, when we got the multi-page document about how things should be done, some of them didn't apply to us, like we don't use hymnals. If we could, then that was against the rules. Um, we've made a number of adaptations here. We don't pass an offering plate, don't do, serve communion different, and so on. But there are other things that, I, you know what? Preaching of the word of God is a sacred task. And you know what? I'm just going to stand on that one and say, hold on. Nothing that turns it into a dog and pony show. Okay? You will not notice a plexiglass shield here. To me, that's just obnoxious. It gets in the way and it's going to sound muffled. I won't do that. And you get to vote on this by showing up or not. And that's congregation does it. Some have said you're not following it enough and choose to not be here. I love those folks. Lord bless you if that's why you're not here. But that's the reasoning behind this. Wait a minute. You can tell us how big the steps should be and where to put fire extinguishers. But you're stepping into spiritual responsibilities here. What you may or may not do in the worship of God. And you can make all the suggestions you like, but you may not mandate. May not. No. And so whether you agree with the, uh, the idea behind it, there's a time to push back on the style. Because often when authority is seated, it is not ever returned. Okay? So again, I'm treating you like adults and asking you to think with me here. Not everybody agrees. I get it. But you also get to vote by whether you, you, know, you show up and get involved in ministry or not. And uh, so again... Uh, I bless the different consciences because I believe in the, the responsibility of individual conscience and I believe in family choice. See, that's why I don't just get after everybody who doesn't see it my way. 
Well, we want to keep them as part of the church. I still want to be their pastor, even if we don't see it the same. It's because I respect those different spheres of authority. Bottom of your sermon notes. Go quickly to the, there's a paragraph there you ought to read. You just got to read it, please. The bottom part, it says this. In this day of politics, kindness and true civility should mark the people of God. That wouldn't be needed if everybody agreed with you. But kindness and civility means you're aware that there are people who don't always agree with you. Christians should be marked by kindness and civility. And I tell you here, the way of Jesus, not the way of Constantine. And that goes back to all those historical examples that I've completely skipped for the sake of time. Each of them, uh, I, I need another hour at least to cover all of those. Very instructive, every one of them. There are dangers on the left and there are dangers on the right. And forgive me, sort of, if I poke whichever view you have. I have said repeatedly that in this church there are people who who lean toward the left and others who lean toward the right or lean nothing wholeheartedly both feet on one side or the other. On both sides, there are those who, especially on the right, who cannot imagine that there are other Jesus-loving people who know their Bibles who don't agree with you. Can't fathom it. I have heard people on the right suggest that people on the left don't know their Bibles very well or, you know, kind of spiritually immature. May I just say that's a pretty arrogant statement. You ought not be saying things like that. Because Jesus-loving people, now things are clear to me. I am, I'm very aware of where I'm going when it comes to voting. You probably are too. I'm calling for respect and kindness in how we communicate to those on the other side. I've said every other time there's a presidential, every time I have said this, not just now, the Sunday after election day, is not to be a rally for whatever person's going to be in the White House. It's not going to be that way. Because for one, that's not what a church is. We're here for worship the living God. It's not going to be a Trump rally or a Biden rally. And we're, to, we're going to come that day, whoever won and who lost, and we're going to with joy worship and serve the living God. It's the way it is, okay? It's what the church is supposed to be. But I'm just cautioning about focusing on individuals, this is, elections should never be about just individuals always stand for something, a party or a platform, whether it's a local level or a state level or a national level, individuals stand for something. So take the individual out. God can take individuals out like nobody's business. What does a party stand for? Please pay attention to this. And I, you know, I've seen back in, four years ago, anybody but Hillary. And I see, and I, th- and I thought then, do you really mean that? And just like today, I see anybody but Trump, and I think, do you really mean that? Is it only about individuals, or can you not see past individuals? And I would call anybody with whatever level of offense this statement brings, please think beyond that. Put on your big boy or big girl pants and think about issues, not just individuals. I don't mean an insult by that. But I, I think you have to think principles. And so there you go. And then a statement here I'm pulling from Oz Guinness. That's why it's in italics. In general, in a two-party system, he says that an outsider to, to American politics, he says we should support the party that tends most toward gospel purposes and values. And I think that's how you should vote. And I think you should vote. I am appalled by the millions of Christians who don't vote. I don't get it, and I think it's wrong. And if that's you, for goodness sake, study, pray, and make a decision. It's your responsibility as a citizen of this country or any country, whatever country you're in, Live as a citizen. Fulfill your responsibility. Um, Make a decision and vote. Agonize, pray, cry. I don't care. Vote. 
Okay? That's what I think you need to do. And then we will continue to worship and serve the living God because he guides it all. I want to pray for us. We'll get you out of here. So thank you for the extra few minutes this morning. Our Father, I thank you for this uh, time here. And again, we so want the shadow of the cross to fall upon our attitudes and our words where perhaps I have misspoken today or stepped across any kind of a line of civility myself. I pray, Father, that you would quickly wipe those things away and point us all to you, God on the throne, our Savior, Redeemer. Our hope is in you, never in a government of any sort. Thank you for being our Savior and our King. We honor you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for being here and bearing with all that. And we'll see you next time to talk about marriage.